This is part two of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash paulwheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash paulwheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. So, have you ever seen a movie called The Book of Eli? I haven't seen it, no. With, with Denzel Washington. So, basically, The Book of Eli is the Bible. And the bad guys desperately want the book. And it's uh, this this future wasteland air thing, dystopian future. Um, and uh, so what it turns out at the end of the movie, I'm going to spoil it completely and thoroughly. It's a lovely movie, a great movie, is that the guy wants the Bible because if he has the Bible, he can control people. Mm-hmm. You know, by just saying you have to have faith, and by faith I mean you have to do what I tell you. And so now he has control of people on the cheap because of a Bible. And and now, now I know you've written books mm-hmm. on faith, and and I'm sure your philosophy is not the same as the villain in the movie. Um, but the the point I'm the point I wish to make. Is that and, and I've got a, and I've got another big question for you. Is as I read through this section, I feel like these are things that people can only debate, which I mentioned before. But control, I feel like you know these are like you have to do what I say, or else it's an anti-pattern. You have to do what I say or it violates the third ethic. You have to do what I say or else it violates this paragraph written in this book. And because you haven't memorized the section of the book, you cannot debate. You can't even debate it. And and so I just kind of feel like this is a, a tool set for people that are that are up to no good. Even though when you read it for the first time, it's just so beautiful and delicious, and it's like I'm coming home. So my question to you, and I think this is super important, and I really am I'm looking forward to your answer, is let's say right now a million people have a good idea of what permaculture means, and they like it. But this all started back in... 1979, this book was written in 1981, and here we are like 40 years later. We're at a million people. If this section of the book and the next section were not in the book, and there was no such thing as the ethics in permaculture, and so this was a book about earthworks and gardening and things of that nature, would there be less people aware of permaculture or more people? I think that part, <clears throat> that question is impossible to answer, but I th- <laughs> it's a, a word, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's a hypothetical, I think it's impossible oh, yeah. to answer, but a, a word is challenging. That, that came to me as you were talking and it came back to something I was 
something else I've been thinking about recently was this, the word, I'm going to throw the word out, one word, dogma. <clears throat> right? Uh, right. Okay. Ugh, now, okay. and so what the, the sentence that came to my mind is this, like any powerful tool can be reduced to dogma. Okay. Any powerful tool, I think, can pretty much be reduced to dogma. Um, and I think, and the question, therefore, is the corollary question then becomes, okay, what, how does that happen, right? How does it, is it happen? Um, and I, I think I actually have an answer for that because there's, um, one of the things that, that we've we've noticed um, in working with with uh, people in um, like nature connection work and so forth, uh, and and seeing people you know growing up in their cultures and so forth is like well when does culture reduce itself to dogma, and what ends up happening um, when things get reduced to dogma is when people um, when the when the written word is all they have. In other words, it's the people who aren't doing and 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 experiencing and getting firsthand, hands-on experience that helps create the cognitive dissonance to understand. Like, you know, you. So, like, here, look, let's go back to like you, Paul, where you're in, you, you you were hands-on in software engineering, right? Yes. You have this powerful tool of patterns and anti-patterns. That you can use, but reality it, it keeps you from reducing them to dogma, to knowing if to, you, you don't. You're not in immediate danger of saying this is perfect. This is this. Yeah, yes, that that's it. That is the answer because you know better because you have real life experience that gives you all this cognitive dissonance, and you realize this is a powerful tool, but no powerful tool is perfect, right? But when you have people who are off. And all they're doing is theorizing, right? Well, ah, in your own brain, your theory can be perfect because there is no inconvenient reality to interfere with your theorizing, right? Uh, when you are out and growing things or you are out building things or you are out, you know, working with people in, an, in a real community, then reality has an unfortunate habit of intruding itself on all of your perfect theories and keeping you from, at least if you're being somewhat honest with yourself, reducing these powerful tools like this down to some dogma that you insist is perfect because you know better. And so I think maybe if between the two of us, we would agree that patterns can be a powerful tool if you know that they are only that, that they are not perfect, that they can inform your thinking at times, but you should never get caught in the idea that they're this perfect thing. And the same idea of just knowing that this idea of an anti-pattern exists allows you to look and go, hmm, you know, this concept having it in your brain is is convenient because you now have this concept of, oh, here's a thing that works but is really suboptimal. They pop up. Uh, for these reasons, I need to keep an eye on them and so forth, you know, but you don't get dogmatic about it. Um, and so I think the same thing is true of the ethics. Um, I'm going to suspect that because you are running Permies, which is this forum that you got maybe a spectrum of people that are arriving, well, let's call 
some on one hand, they, the theorizers, that is, they've been theorizing about everything their whole life and they don't actually ever do a thing. And then maybe on the far other side, you have folks that are just like, they're just in there doing. They're doing and doing and doing, right? There's a spectrum of people. But I would suspect if we were able to like somehow magically know who the people were that were arriving that were giving you grief because they were being dogmatic about these powerful tools that I'm going to suspect the vast majority of them are much further over into the theorizer camp than they are into the actual doing it camp. Um, so the question then becomes if it is true that people who are completely over in the theorizing camp can take a powerful tool and hijack it and make a mess out of it, does that mean that it's not possible for the people who are actually doing to use that tool in a beneficial way? And my answer is that I think it's still possible for the people to use that tool in a beneficial way if they can keep from getting dogmatic about it and using it in all the way. So, like, you know, you have a front row seat to all the people who have figured out how to be dogmatic about things like the ethics and hijack them and do awful things with them. So I keep on telling my PDC when we're there, and because it's like, yep, Paul has gotten to see all these people who are hijacking all these, these powerful tools and using them in the worst possible way. So Paul has become gun-shy about some of these powerful tools because he's seen all the awful mess they can make when they're used this way. But I still think we can use these tools if we use them wisely. And um, I guess that's kind of encapsulates the way I've been thinking about this, you know, that that um, I still want to use these tools because I can get a lot done with them, um, understanding that they're that they can be used and they can be dangerous. So you've elected to not answer my question. You're you're going to dodge it. <laughs> well, no, I, I I got I got to monologuing like any good supervillain, and um, and and uh, I'm I'm but uh, so. I think here's the deal. I'll come back to I think what I remember is your question. I, I think that if we got if 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 the ethics were not in the book, um, that you could have a perfectly uh, lovely little gardening book. And if your idea of permaculture was that it is fancy gardening, that's all that you think Mollison was trying to accomplish. Um, There's then, more to the book than gardening. There's a lot more in here besides gardening. I'm being it is provocative. A, a collection. I, I, yeah, you're, yes. you know, so I'm intentionally being provocative just a little bit here. Okay. Yeah. But I, I'm 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 being a little bit provocative just intentionally here. But okay, gardening and you know food forests and a few other things like that. Natural right? building, okay. alternative energy, yeah. um, the philosophy of mm-hmm. replacing petroleum with people. Mm-hmm. But see, I mean. Every bit of that, by the time we start getting into all of that, what you're basically would be asking is, would it have been better for all of the ethics in the book to have been implicit instead of explicit? And would that have been a better way to have to spread this? Because all of these things have implicit ethics to them. Right. Yes. Every bit of it. You can't get rid of it because, yeah. as we said, when you design, you materialize morality. And in that moment, you have made ethical decisions. So I think I would have to come back and say, when I hear that question, what I hear is, would it have been better for permaculture's ethics to have been implicit instead of explicit? And um, 
I think that is a that is a um, a complex question because you know we we can kind of get down and, and, and so again it's a hypothetical which would have created the better outcomes in terms of large scale on the ground making a difference and hopefully making making things better right that's so what we would I, I think most of us who are after this are after it because we think that we can um, uh, to to quote. Uh, 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 an author, uh, build a better world. Um, <laughs> building a better world. Building a better, well, I'm, I'm having to change the tense just to make it fit the sentence. You know, okay. we can build a better world. We can get involved in building a better world and, you know, and so forth. So right there in the title, there is implied that there is, it, 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 you know, there's some ethical and moral dimension to this because you've yes. got to define what better is, right? Right. It's and, that what we have could be yes, better. Right. And so then you kind of get down to like what I'm trying to do right now, which is like, okay, let's take this whole permaculture design system and these really powerful design tools that actually are applicable at large scale. And we now, instead of it being a single designer in a backyard or on a homestead, making design decisions in which the design decisions can have implicit moral and ethical dimension because the person has internalized their own moral and ethical dimension right so if you're going to if you're going to keep permaculture at that scale permanently then i think it is a technically viable option to say we will just intentionally make the ethics implicit so that the individual designer can you know having internalized their own ethic can apply it to this. But then when you get to the scale that I'm looking right now, which is teams of professionals looking at how, I mean, I I say this uh, when I'm I'm talking to larger groups. It's like, look, we now have several million professional designers on the planet that are actually the ones that are responsible, working in in, in fairly good-sized teams who are responsible for driving a large percentage of the resource utilization that human beings are making on the planet. And without them actually changing what they're doing, it's going to be very, very difficult. Now, what I think, Paul, you've been trying to do is get people to drive that from the demand side. It's like if you make, if you change how you're doing things in your own backyard, then you are reducing your own footprint at the same time you're changing your demand footprint, which also drives into what these people that are these professional designers are being told to do because there is signal coming to them to say that there is demand for a different way of going about it. But it's like when you get these teams together, now you have large groups of people, you have stakeholders and so forth. Now you're having to have the conversation about what are our goals and so forth. Now you have multiple people working at scale to create the infrastructure of civilization. At this point in time, if you attempt to leave all of the ethics in, in completely implicit, then real life tells us that it typically gets reduced down to some extremely narrow metric like how can we make the most money and then we get down to that self-centered thing I was talking about before, which is if in any entity, any element in your system, it becomes um, – its its whole definition of success is maximization of its own short-term profit, then the beneficial interrelationships in the 
in the in the system begin to to fall apart, and the overall working of the system begins to suffer, and pretty soon everybody is poorer off than they were they were before, which is exactly what we're seeing with human civilization right now. Uh, we have a lot of uh, a lot of the logistics of of uh, uh, of how large scale human civilization is actually happening today has been based around the work from a lot of very large corporations, all of whom legally their metric success for a long time was how much they optimized their short-term profits. And the systemic outcome of that has been to basically bring us into danger of collapsing um, the global ecosphere. And so now this conversation is having to be surfaced, and I'm having this conversation in a variety of professional venues with the folks that are building this stuff because now they're, like, realizing that this is this is the outcome, and they're realizing that they're going to have to come up with better metrics of success that are based more upon cooperative interactions with the surrounding environment than just a single narrow definition that our ethic is make the most money as possible and that you know that will um because of the invisible hand of the market and the rising tide will raise all boats and everybody will be better off well that theory has been tried and now we know you know the very few people that i'm running into in the professional world will actually you know will will make that argument anymore they, they that's been pretty thoroughly debunked and the serious people I'm talking to, they're not trying to make that argument. They're realizing that we have to do something different. Now we are surfacing this whole thing of like, okay, how do we, how do we as a group of people agree upon the best way forward? That makes the ethical and moral discussion emerge. So I think my answer, having gone all the way around the bush about three times, would be <laughs> that if we think that the ultimate goal of permaculture is for single individuals to design things on the homestead or the backyard scale or, you know, that the scale is possible for in single individual people to design, then it would have been possible to have left all of the ethics implicit. Um, and hope for the best, but maybe like just by putting them in and suggesting them through the book, right, through the mindset of the book, hoping people would sort of internalize that and then go off and do it. But I think that if we think that permaculture is a set of design techniques and approaches that can scale to actually tackle problems at the scale that I'm trying to work with them, then leaving it all completely implicit um, becomes problematic, and I'm not certain how that would be made to work. So I think that, you know, when you get to this scale where you have hundreds of stakeholders, that these decisions, be, you know, these discussions are inevitable. And um, so I, I think that for that, for my purposes, as I'm working with and talking to people, I'm explicitly addressing the ethics because they're there whether you want them or not, and the discussion is going to happen. We might as well just face it. So if this was not in the book, yeah, would there be more people bonkers about permaculture or fewer? And as I said, I don't know any way of answering that question because 
you know, you're, you're basically, you know, saying what goes viral and what doesn't go viral. Boy, that's a, it's a whole thing. It's true. It's true. However, I, I do think like Darren Doherty would mm-hmm. still embrace the word permaculture and, uh, Rob Hopkins, when talking about the transition 10 movement, he would have mm-hmm. used the word permaculture. In fact, later he stated, uh, explicitly that that the whole transition town movement is about permaculture, but he needed to not use that word when introducing it because of all of the baggage that comes with, because all the negative baggage that comes with the word permaculture. Right. And, and so I kind of feel like, and then of course there's this whole concept of, you know, which I've mentioned in the podcast many times, you go to try to mm-hmm. talk to a farmer about it. And he's like, I love these techniques. What do you call this? And you say permaculture. And he says, get the fuck off my land. I'm not going to make any more money. By blowing rainbows out my ass. Right. So then comes the whole thing where you're 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 talking about the pure profit motivation, which to me is like that's what Sepp Holzer did. It's like number one, profit. <laughs> and and basically he came up with an agricultural system that made him far more money than any other conventional agriculture system. And so it's kinda like I kind of feel like there's a lot of people where it's like if they just had some more money, everything would work out. And I kind of want them to get the idea that you'll make a lot more money with permaculture than what you're currently doing. And and so I still have this fantasy that someday all of the food you'll buy at your local grocery store will be permaculture food, not because – it had anything to do with making the world a better place, but everything to do with farmers figuring out that they can make more money by growing it a permaculture way than by growing it the way that they're growing it now. So I, I, I'm kind of back to like, you know, this pure profit motivation, and I kind of feel like, okay, you admitted point blank that that's what's screwing everything up. Because there's so much desire for this pure profit motivation. And the thing I keep thinking is, is it's like, okay, let's embrace that that's a thing. Now, let's provide a suggestion that's like, hey, buddy, you know, with this permaculture stuff, you can make some more money than what you're making now. And then it's like, boom, permaculture takes off and goes wild. That's So I'm kind of thinking, you know, that's, that's an angle that I that I really want to work. I believe that permaculture we would have ten times more people bonkers about permaculture today if we removed this rather this this section that provided me so much joy when I first read it. So I kind of feel like part of me believes that it feeds the soul when you are first starting into the world of permaculture. But another part of me believes that this is the part that holds the rest of it back from going into serious circles. And and one last thing I want to say is you keep talking about professionalism and and as, as a counter to some of the self-centered stuff. And I kind of feel like in a lot of this stuff that you're talking about, it's it's like there's people that are like, I'm glad I'm being paid a professional wage to have this conversation about ethics and about the profit of our organization and how, 
you know, if we shifted our stuff a little bit, we might be able to actually do some stuff for the greater community and make a profit. And it's kind of like, so I, I, I mean, you and I are recording this podcast right now and neither of us is getting paid a fucking cent. We're, our motivations are something that might be rather pure. I, I mean, my, my podcast ran into the red for years. I think now with the help of Patreon, it now like maybe breaks even. Um, I want to, yeah, I'll say maybe breaks even. It's a little squishy in that space, but maybe breaks even. Um, but outside of that, uh, I don't make any money on it. I'm breaking, I'm breaking even now, which is nice. And, uh, so neither of us are making any money on this. I know I'm not paying you anything to be here. Um, there is this possibility that people might choose to attend the PDCs that you teach. But I mean, it's remote, which by the way, the 2021 PDCs have been announced. <laughs> the, the 2021 PDC here at Wheaton Labs has been announced and we're selling tickets. And that might be a good time to point out too. I don't believe I have, uh, uh, I know of anybody who has ever offered a PDC that ran in the black. Surely there's somebody. I, I think that the online PDCs run in the black. But in-person PDCs, I don't believe that they do. I think that they're all an act of generosity by the people involved. Um, all right. I've, I've said a lot of things. Uh, I, I believe it's a complicated, I, I also believe like with rocket mass heaters, I think, I think buy-in for rocket mass heaters would be 20 times greater if we claimed that they reduce your wood use by 30% instead of by 90%. But the reality is it's 90%. And so that's yes. too unbelievable for people. <laughs> but I, I believe so, that the blowing rainbows out my ass factor and the, the parade of people saying that's not permaculture is holding permaculture back in a big way. And, and a lot of that is rooted in the, in the ethics. So <clears throat> I guess one of the things I'll, I'll point out is that you know, we're talking about profit motive <clears throat> and, um, I guess we'll have to clarify because I think we're actually sort of agreeing on something that that uh, may not be evident, but so I'll, I'll kind of clarify. One is there, there's there's two different ways of looking at profit motive. One is I guess I'll call it competition that that like you know self-centered competition that um, in in looking at how to optimize my profits, I undertake what I would see as an anti-pattern of being completely you know, um, non-system focused. It's all about my short-term gains instead of working in a system and helping to make that system richer and more productive. And then there is the profit motive that is I can work in a cooperative fashion in the system and make the system much more productive, much more fertile, and therefore, over time, my profits become greater. Which, to me, is exactly what SEP did. If you look at it, what SEP was up to is like looking at the natural systems, working with nature. He keeps on talking about that, you know, reading the book of nature, working with nature, and so forth. And he realized that by doing that, that instead of concentrating up front on just short-term 
you know, I'll call it like one dimensional profit that by focusing on creating um, and, and being part of an incredibly rich ecosystem in which he was a keystone, you know, a keystone species, the human keystone species in that ecosystem producing an amazing amount of abundance that everybody in that um, ecosystem benefited the the plants, the trees, the animals, the humans, everything was benefiting. And as a result, he is making, you know, a lot of profit. Um, that's a different way of thinking about being profitable than this idea of it's all just short term. How do I make a quick buck and you know get out the door? And I think it's, a, you know, again, I think that's sort of a little bit of an anti-pattern of that because in the end, it's, it's, there's a few people who will get away with it and make a whole bunch of money. But as we've seen in our culture, that's a small percentage. It's maybe a couple percent that will get away with that. And so people look at that and go, oh, look at there. They got away with it. They, they have way more money than they could ever want. Therefore, that's the way to do it. But then if you look at our overall culture and ask, okay, great, if we all follow that anti-pattern, will it be possible for all of us to get that result? And the answer I would submit is no, it's not. If, on the other hand, we all take the systems view of abundance and we were all to work cooperatively with the ecosystems we're in and we were all to invest in that and cooperate with that and basically do the things that the ethics are suggesting, would it be possible for a much larger percentage of the people to actually, you know, have a richer, more abundant life? And I think the answer to that is unambiguously yes. And I think that that is, uh, if Paul, if I'm understanding where you're coming from, that's part of the argument you're making with the permaculture millionaire or, you know, being luxurious, having a luxurious life um, in, in, in a permaculture sense um, that we have to kind of get past this thing that is a very narrowly focused make a quick buck and, and run for the hills to something that's a little more systemically profitable over time so that it's it's really really hard to have a rich and abundant life when all of your human nature uh, human neighbors are um um basically impoverished um and so i think that a more successful view of profitable means that we are looking at ways of being profitable as a culture so that my neighbors are also in good shape because when they are, then that enriches me in other ways and in other dimensions. I think there's truth to that. <clears throat> and at the same time, there's a lot that I object to. Um, and I, I kind of feel like one of the things I want to do is to state like, if we take what Sepp Holzer did at the Karameterhof, 
And granted, he's off at the Holzerhof now, but you know, yes, he's, we just take a look at what he did, and then we say something like what you just said: only only those that are the early adopters get to have this magnificent profit. Then I I kind of feel like, well, I think that's great. Go be early adopters. Now we get to the point where it's like there are millions of farms like that. Mm-hmm. And then in order for Sepp Holzer to be making more money than the other millions of farms, he's got to continue to innovate. And I kind of feel like he would, and he can, his son can, and his son will. And uh, I think there's a lot to be said for, for you know, having a 60-year head start on this kind of stuff. Um, and so then, you know, he'll bring an even greater profit. But at the same time, like, okay, well, what if somebody – they're 10 years in and they've adopted this. They switched over and worked full time on, on doing these techniques to bolster their profit. I think that they will still profit more than if they stuck to a more conventional approach. So I kind of feel like yes. follow that profit motivation, buddy. You know, uh, it's like, uh, don't listen to Alan. He's talking about like we all cooperate. And I gotta say that it's like, there's a lot of truth there. Assuming that everybody that's in your group, that everybody on the planet is noble. And it's like, I just don't think they are. And, and so then I kind of feel like, let's give some room to that. Cause you're right. If your neighbors, if you've got 10 neighbors and they're all prospering, you prosper too. That is totally true. And yet I cannot help but think that seven of those 10 neighbors they're not going to want to put the work in. And, and, and I'll, and at those seven, it's even plausible to say that, that, uh, the only reason that they show up to whatever job that they have and tolerate it is to get the money to barely stay alive. And it's like, if you take that away and you, and you give them ample, they stop functioning. Now, granted, there's a lot of studies showing that I'm wrong about this, where they've taken communities and said, we're going to give all these guys all the money they want. And apparently they then turn to be quite productive. And so I'm wrong. And I just jump to this errant conclusion due to <laughs> life experience. And uh, uh, so – I, there's so much of what you're saying that I agree with and disagree with at the same time. And I also know that for today's podcast, we've got a hard stop time. And I kind of feel like I just want to summarize by saying this, this section of the book is troublesome for me. It's, it's kind of like a, a beautiful, joyous thing while simultaneously being a dark and depressing thing for me. <laughs> and I'm trying to share why, and I think my words probably sound absolutely crazy to most rational people. And, and, I, I, and all I want to say to those people is, I know, right? I'm confused too. I, I, I feel weird reading this now and... It, I, then, of course, all the struggles I've had for the last 
you know, 15, 20 years, ever since I first learned the word permaculture, and ever since I first read these words. And so uh, it's not easy, and I kind of feel like so much of the discussion in, in this section of this book is, is um, it's an opening to a much greater discussion that I don't want to have. <laughs> now, I've had some people who have insisted that I am some sort of philosopher, and I kind of feel like this book is for the philosophers, and the fact that I no longer want to participate in the conversation, I think stands as proof that I am I am no philosopher. Um, I, I, I think... I like I enjoy Sepp Holzer's permaculture book, which doesn't have any of the ethics in it. It's it's more like all of the eth ethics are woven into the techniques. And I know that I th I'm pretty sure that in the previous podcast I mentioned my philosophy. And I shouldn't use the word philosophy, I suppose, just what I have denounced philosophy. <laughs> but uh, where it's like there's the Holzerian approach. Versus the Holmgrenian approach. Holmgren's going to say, here's the ethics, which leads to the techniques. And the Holzer approach is going to be, here is the techniques, which leads to the ethics. And, and, it, and you've described this as implicit and explicit just a moment ago. I'm, I'm going to subscribe to Seps. Now, an important thing is, is that Bill Mollison looked at Seps' place and said, this is permaculture. And at no point, did Sepp ever study the ethics? And so I, I started off with a big, as a big fan of this book that I'm holding right now. And, um, and now I am a, I am a bigger fan. While I remain a big fan of this book, I'm a bigger fan of Sepp Holcher's techniques. And, and probably dominantly because of how there isn't this piece about the ethics, which has brought me so much pain over the years. I think we need to, we need to wrap up this section. I have a couple of pieces that I've highlighted from this section and, and then I'm, I'm ready to turn it over to you, uh, you know, to, to wrap up unless you've got something to, uh, to say about all that I've said, but I think you've, I think you may have already said. Uh, I guess there's two, two quick thoughts. One, of course, is yes, it turns out that, um, that, uh, humans are the, probably the most, uh, difficult and complex part of the systems we're designing. Yeah. And, um, number two is I think I, I circled back to something I said early on, which is that when they're working, um, they're seldom talked about in terms of the ethics. When there's, they're actually working that it's it, when when, it, when the ethics become like the center of contention, then I think what's happening is they're they're revealing deeper problems. And so one of the things as an engineer, I'm really always trying to think about is what is the symptom and what's the problem. And my suspicion would be when we get to the point that the ethics are a huge source of contention that what we are seeing is a symptom 
of something else that is going on with the people that is a deeper problem and that if we're going to solve that problem that we're going to have to dig in and figure out because just trying to do away with the symptom by refusing to talk about the ethics I suspect is not going to do away with the underlying problems. It's they're going to show up somewhere else. Um, so I don't I don't think that if if you ask me could we solve this problem by just not, not talking about the ethics I'm going to be dubious because I think that any time that they that this pops up and the ethics are misused in the ways that you have seen um, that this is betraying an underlying problem that. It's going to have to be addressed or it's going to continue to cause problems. I find that I would much rather talk about the techniques and I'd rather not talk about the ethics. And I agree with you. I would much rather be in a situation where all the people are such that they've internalized all the ethics to the degree that we and, and they're working with them to the degree that we don't have to even really talk about it. Um, and then it all just beautifully happens. Um, that would be the ideal world. And as I usually say as I'm teaching, the, the, in the ideal world in which we do not live, that's how it would happen. Um, so I, I would just see that the ethics becoming a problem um, and, and becoming a, 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 a focus of deep conversation uh, that keeps on going is simply showing you that there is this deeper underlying um, disagreement among the people in the in the system and uh, that you're not that, that it's gonna it's gonna show itself it's gonna show itself you, you're not gonna we would I, I think I agree with you I don't like drama either and um, I would prefer not to have to go there um, I just don't think that ignoring it at that stage if it is present is going to fix it. And now you know why I will never teach a PDC. <laughs> I I think that it's I think it's the appropriate thing in teaching a PDC is to cover this material the way that it was intended to be covered and in a way that is like when I first read the book and it brought me so much joy. To from that perspective of enjoyment of the ethics to find them delicious that that's what a PDC needs to do, and I can't do that anymore. I, I, I cannot go back in time and be that person again. And um, it's a price that I've paid by by managing the forums and trying to move permaculture forward in the way that I I see it needs to be moved forward. Um, mm-hmm. And yep, so, fair enough. so it came at a cost. Yep, uh, there yep. are two pieces of this section that I wish to share uh, in this podcast. Uh, one is uh, where it says, uh, Bill says, it is a philosophy of working with rather than against nature. And so I know we talk about that a lot, but there there it is. It, it actually says mm-hmm. it right in the book. And and uh, I, 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 I agree heartily with that. Um, I think that the Colorado potato beetle is part of nature. Therefore, we do not try to kill it. Instead, it is an indicator of where we have designed poorly. Mm -hmm. Um, Having trouble figuring out 
how to find similar balance with knapweed, but I'm sure it'll come to me someday. Uh, the last little piece I want to share is people think I am slightly crazy when I tell them to go home and garden or not to involve themselves in broad-scale mechanized agriculture. But a little thought and reading will convince them that this is, in fact, the solution to many world problems. All right, gardening. And, and so Jeff Lawton says all the world's problems can be solved in a garden. I don't think that's absolutely true, but I do think there is a great deal of truth to it. And so basically yes. here's, here's Bill saying effectively uh, a, a very similar thing, and that this is, in fact, the solution to many world problems. And I believe that my book basically, sort of spoiler alert, that's kind of what my book says. Yes. Kinda. To yes. solve the world's problems, grow a garden. Mm-hmm. Grow a small there, one, and it's a small solution. Grow a big one, it's a big solution. That's most of it right there. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of these things that kind of, you know, that as I was reading through this, I realized that, that part of my thought about the idea of cooperative, you know, cooperating versus competition and cooperative systems being more productive. Um, right here in this section as well, Bill he says, as he usually does very succinctly, he says a basic question. You can look at it two ways, right? You can ask the question, like, for example, what can I get from this lander person? It's it's a it's a self-focused like what can I get versus what does this person or land have to give if I cooperate with them? Then he says this is, to me it's very interesting. Of these two approaches, the former leads to war and waste; the latter to peace and plenty. Uh, okay, I read that too, and I was afraid that you would mention it and bring it up. <laughs> And, and while I, again, I think that while there's a great deal of truth to that, I don't mm-hmm. believe it's absolutely true. Um, I, I do believe, like, you know, I'm looking at Sepp Holzer, and, and I think that his mm-hmm. primary motivation was, is like, I need coin. Yep. And I think I can make more money by developing a symbiotic relationship with nature rather than making Mother Nature my personal bitch. Which, Which is, is exactly the way I read what Mollison just said there. And well, and like I kind of option option one is is your second statement. How can I make everything else serve me? Versus how can I be more? How can I make bigger profit by having a symbiotic relationship with everything else? Right, a cooperative thing, and and I kind of feel like, I mean. I know, Alan, you're working dominantly with professional people, but uh, but and even but even within professions, not everybody's noble. Oh no! And, and if you go and you're working with people, in fact, I would have to go so far as to say only five percent of the population is noble. And if you're going to work with a more cooperative relationship with people that are not noble, that means their primary function is I need to let Alan know, obey. Or else, and it, and that means it's not. They're gonna say it's cooperative. They're gonna paint the whole thing in cooperation sauce, and they're gonna be like, 
this is cooperation. Look at this book here. It says you need to cooperate with me, and which which I'm going to interpret to mean that you're going to be my personal bitch. And it's kind of like so. I I agree that there's a lot of truth to it, and it's tempered. I'm I I'm nervous about possible interpretations of this <laughs> only because I've been through this so many times. And in fact, you know, if you, if you look at the shitstorm I've been through and you are intimately familiar with it, mm-hmm. then all of it comes back to obey or else. And it's kind of like, how did that work out? How did that work out? In fact, I just recently was seeing a bunch of stuff on um, on Reddit, and this guy is like this Paul Wheaton guy is such a piece of shit. You can't believe anything. I can't believe people are supporting his his Kickstarter. He's such a piece of shit. How is it that anybody would support him? They obviously are not aware of all of the facts about how this guy is a piece of shit. So he's like sharing the links to the Fouch video and sharing the links to the Slumlord thing, and it's kind of like. Uh, and, and it's like, so now I go and I click on his thing and go look into him. The, the guy is a heroin addict. Half of his posts are about his struggle to stop taking heroin. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, okay, so what are your achievements in the world of permaculture? Unknown, because, of course, he's an anonymous person. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so, therefore, from his perspective, and, of course, he persuaded a lot of people and from the perspective of all these people, it's like my 20 years of effort and sharing things for free is less than a tirade by a heroin addict, by an anonymous heroin addict. Mm-hmm. And so, all right, cooperation. This would suggest that I need to cooperate with the heroin addict. And no, his idea of cooperation would be obedience from me, or else he'll continue doing more of this. So if we try to design a system by the worst-case outliers, we can never design a system that functions. And um, so, you know, it's like, yeah, there there are those people out there that you basically said. I, I would look at them and go, nope, uh, not interested in working with you. Thank you very much. Um, and, um, you know, in, in my in my personal and, and professional experience over three decades, um, I haven't had to put up with that much of, uh, you know, do it my way or else. Um, I, I, you know, it's just, just been my personal experience. Um, there have been a few people who are like that, and it's just like, well, uh, I choose not to work with you. Um, right. You know, uh, we're here in the South in the Bible Belt, and, um, you know, according to how you do it, you're, you're either, you look at them and go, well, bless your heart, you know, which... Um, you can say it that way, or if you if you go you know, in church, you can say, "Well, God bless your ministry," which is sort of like, yeah, you just you 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 go off and do your thing. I'm I, I have you know, there you go, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's it. It's just like, well, because to me, I have been able to find plenty of good collaborators. None of us are perfect, right? None of us are perfect at cooperating, but I think there are a lot of us that look at things and go, you know, uh, it just seems to turn out better for all of us when we do cooperate to a certain degree, and we will have our differences. It won't be perfect and so forth, but the outcomes for us have, are better, and I don't get the vibe from them that I will do what they say or else. Um, 
And so now, when, I, when you say that in, mm-hmm. in the Bible Belt, that mm-hmm. people say, bless your heart. Yes. What I think our listeners might not know, which I uh-huh. know exactly what you're saying because you've explained it to me at least eight times. Yep. That there's a translation. If you, uh-huh. And so perhaps you would be so kind as to enlighten our listeners as to the translation for bless your heart. I think the problem is that you can tr- it can translate just like uh, some other <laughs> phrases can translate about eight different ways. Okay. Um, it, it's 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 uh, in the way I'm using it here. It's just kind of like, well, okay, uh, if that's the way you're going to be, just you you go off, and um, I'm not going to have anything more to do with you here. But it's it's a little condescending, yes, but it's it's also sort of like that. Um, isn't that special? You know, well, just yeah. you you go off and yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, yeah, there are people to say one possible translation could be, well, you're a stupid fuck, aren't you? Uh, I've heard people use it that way. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, uh, uh, the thing about, uh, bless your ministry would be, you come from a group of stupid fucks, don't you? It, it kind of comes back to the. I think what you're you're trying to do is is uh, not very smart and is probably destined to fail. <laughs> so, all right, all right. I I think you are trying to be very polite about how to be impolite while being polite. <laughs> it's a very Which southern isn't thing, working. Yes. It's it's getting too vague. It's a very <laughs> southern thing. <laughs> All right, for the next podcast that we're going to record from this book comes possibly my most favorite two pages out of the entire book. And it's like pages, I don't know if it appears, but pages four and five in your book. I mean, think about that. We've we've now gotten through page six with the exception of we had to skip pages four and five. Why they appear in the ethics section, I don't know, but... But is do you have on your book? Is it pages four and five? These you mean figure one dot one? Figure one dot one. Yes. Yes. Which has a chart. Yeah. Yes. And and it kind of continues a little bit on the next page as you know trying to explain what you're looking at there. Right. But I am excited. I'm giddy at the idea of the next podcast and talking about this, especially now that we've gotten through what I consider to be the worst part of this whole book. And I'm, I feel so bad saying that. Uh, and I know I can't help but think that I'm going to get uh, 500 awful people that are going to say awful things based on the things that I've just said in this podcast, which kind of shows that any time that you record a podcast and if you say anything substantial, then – you're taking a step backward, or maybe I should say you're exposing yourself to awfulness, and I'll get a bunch. <laughs> I, I already look like a furry animal based upon the, the total arrow count that's within my body from all these awful people. Um, and I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm going to go ahead and get more, but I do feel like it's, I wish to state it I think it's I think it's important to state, and and that uh, because because the main reason is is that I wish for permaculture to move forward, 
and I'd like to be able to arm people to be able to move permaculture forward in the face of somebody that's going to try to say that's not permaculture. And they're going to try and, and use the words in this section to impede their own efforts. And I, I wish for people to be able to step around those other people and move forward and do amazing things. Um, so, and, and carry the word permaculture proudly and lovingly. So, anything else to add about section 1.2? Um, hmm. That was about two pages, so we're we're blistering forward at a at a. <laughs> well, and I'm glad that we said what we had to say about it. Yes, yes. And um, and thank you for being the guy that comes here to teach the PDC and uh, an amazing PDC. So, I I you're you're doing a thing that I feel uncomfortable doing anymore. Hmm. And you do a you do a magnificent job. Well, thank you. Yes, and um, yeah, well, I, I you know I, I just hope that as as things go forward, that um, you know your your experience of uh, of uh, dealing with the cross section of people you get to deal with, uh, that you you have the opportunity to deal with people who are, I think you call them more lovely, um, and you know because those are the people I think we can actually move forward with. You know, the yes. ones that are, the ones that are, the, the, those who are, I don't think they all have to be noble in order to, you know, realize that cooperating is, is, is a good way forward and that, you know, being nice with each other and, and actually having some discussions about how we can be productive and how we can, you know, move things forward using these tools, um, you know, is, is a worthwhile thing. So, um, just hoping, here's hoping that, you know, those, those people, uh, will start to win out a little bit more and, uh, that they, they'll, they'll come to be a more predominant part of the conversation. I, I do think that, um, by working together, we can do more than we can apart, far more. Uh, yes. Like, like five times more together than apart. Yes. And, uh, there's a, a, a long list of mysteries to resolve for that to work well and um, I know and there's some, some places that seem to have been able to do it and they're they're very um, religion based mm-hmm. uh, I would like to be able to find a way of doing it without religion um, and I think it's plausible and and it's even done I, I think in a way it's done like in an old folks home um, mm-hmm. and so we can you know learn some lessons from from that model but and, and, and of course, for all of permaculture, permaculture includes community, and I think that the community aspect is 20 times greater than all the rest of permaculture combined. And um, it's going to be challenging to solve this problem. I also kind of feel like, for all the stuff in this book, I think it falls to you and I, and a lot of other people, another hundred people to figure out how does permaculture grow beyond Bill Mollison? What's, what is the future of permaculture? Yes. We, you know, we need to understand what Bill Mollison has defined, and I think we're going to end up throwing out 20% of it. 
along the way of, of growth. Because all of our growth, I think, I think if we say we will never throw away a speck of what Bill Mollison had to say, our growth will be impeded by that. And I don't think Bill would want that. I think Bill. No, because then we've arrived back at dogma. True. So what is, what is the future? We've, we've got to figure that out. Mm-hmm. And, um, in many ways, I think we have made some progress in that space. And, uh, but I, I think there's going to be a lot more. And, um, I think as much as I think a, a good example is, is that when people talk about if you're going to just read one book about permaculture, what book is that? I would say that the number one answer is Gaia's Garden by Toby Hemingway. And the number two answer is if you have two or more acres, it needs to instead be Sepulcher's Permaculture. And um, I've never heard people – well, no, I'm not going to say never. I'm going to say it's rare to hear people say Bill Mollison's book, A, De- A Designer's Manual. Um, would you agree with that? I think for the vast majority of people, um, those would be good. You know, I, I think that if you're uh, a, a designing in a serious, you know, like really serious designer of large scale systems, um, then the designer's manual is something you need to, yeah. you know, need, need to go through. It's got so much important stuff in it. Um, but for people just get, especially just getting started on the, if you say if there are only going to be one book, then that, that implies their first book. And so then I would agree. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, if they're trying to understand and wrap their mind around it and stuff like that, um, and I'd, I think it's, it's fair to say, I know the thing I say is, is that if you've got two acres or more, sepulchers permaculture, if you've got less than two acres, then it's going to be, um, Gaia's garden. Um, and, uh, I think that, yeah, if you're going to be a professional anyway, then of course now we're not talking about one book. Really, it should be closer to 10 or more. Mm-hmm. And definitely, um, the big black book will be in there. Yes. All right. We are out of time, sir. Anything else you want to squeeze in? No, I think I'm good. Okay. If you like this sort of thing, come on after the forums at permies.com. We talk about Bill Mollison, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash paulwheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.